It is good to be with you this morning, and I would ask if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Today we're going to begin a study which I will continue, Lord willing, uh, in the month of January and the beginning of February in uh, the study of the church. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, a topic that's uh, in some ways connected to and an important re- connection to the uh, Advent season that we are in right now. But we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16 and we're going to be reading at verse 13. Matthew chapter 16 beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, that you have bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loose in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that he should tell no one that he was the Christ. If you keep your hand there and turn over to the book of Ephesians with me for just a moment. The book of Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is great but i am speaking with reference to christ and the church nevertheless each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband let us pray Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you that he is the reason for our singing. He is the reason for this season. He is the the author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, as we are often uh, overwhelmed by the circumstances in our personal lives or overwhelmed by the things that are happening around us or in our nation and in our world, we would ask that your spirit might lift up our gaze and that we might see him that we might see him seated on the throne, having all authority and power, and that we would hear his voice, that we would hear him say, I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, Father, as we are gathered here this morning, and whether we're watching on Zoom or whether we're here in person, we ask that your Spirit might speak to us. I pray that your Spirit might encourage us, that you might help us to understand what your Word is saying to us, that we might hear your voice. Lord, we need you. Lord, we cry out to you. As we ask, Lord, for revival, for strength, for renewal of our thinking, the renewal of our hearts, we pray, Father, that this might begin even somewhat today, some measure of progress, here a little, there a little. We pray, God, that your spirit might help us grow and bring glory and honor to your name. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I have been reflecting on the significance of what COVID has done to our nation, our world, and the church at large. It was interesting that during COVID, the the state of New Jersey ordered all the churches to gather, uh, to close, I should say, and prevented all gathering for a period of time, for quite some time, actually. It was a state mandate during that time that churches and other gatherings could not take place. Yet it was ironic to me that the governor of New Jersey thought liquor stores were essential. The church wasn't, but liquor stores were. Uh, they did not close the liquor stores. Of course, there was a reason why they did that, because if you understand, and I, I got this from someone who actually worked, who knew someone who worked in Trenton, and they were talking about this necessity, and that was they were terrified of what would happen if alcoholics couldn't buy booze. That they were really afraid that that the pandemic was shutting down everything and shutting down society, what it would mean for people who were dependent on alcohol for their survival if suddenly they could not get alcohol. And so they had to leave the liquor stores, or they had to deem liquor stores essential because there was like a medical necessity. Because they were afraid that they, people couldn't get alcohol. Once the alcohol was all used up, they'd start drinking like rubbing alcohol and stuff like that. In other words, it was necessary for their survival, and therefore it was deemed essential. But it's interesting now when you think about that and, and you think about the irony, and I understand that a gathering of Christians together in a church singing and so on and so forth is different than walking into a liquor store and buying booze and understanding the difference between those two events. I do find it interesting on a, on a metaphorical level that our society deemed liquor stores essential, but not the church. Gathering together as a church was not deemed to be essential. And so as a society there was a message that was sent that you could live without church or you could live without church the way church was. Now, all the churches scrambled and some scrambled better than others. We all got new technologies and we all kind of got up to speed and trying to keep things going and maintain connections and maintain relationship. We tried really hard to make that work. But it has been interesting to me as I've traveled around and I've visited different assemblies and I've read about different things in the church that there's been a noticeable decline in church attendance. That there was a before COVID and there's been an after COVID. That before COVID, there were churches that were multiplying and expanding campuses. There's a church up by us in Merchant. Some of you may have heard of it. They were just planting church after church after church and multiplying campuses. And they've closed many of those campuses because the attendance is not there anymore. I know of places, assemblies, where they were running two services, two family Bible hours, they're down to only one. I've known assemblies where they've had to restructure their entire format because the attendance is just not there. 
There was a before COVID and then there's an after COVID. And of course, it's hard, right? It's hard now because there's a natural tendency upon human beings to always default to, to the least we can do. And technology, while it's a great blessing to help us connect with each other overseas or over distances or when we're infirmed ill, that there, that, well, you know, let's see who's preaching today. I could just kind of scroll through my YouTube channels and see which message I want to listen to. Who's got the best performance on, on my iPad? Where is the next YouTube message? Let me follow. You know what? I could follow this guy or I could follow that guy. I can get church at any time. I don't need to be any place or go anywhere. I can do church in my pajamas. Now, let's be honest. How many of us attended Zoom church meetings in our pajamas? <laughs> right? We all did it. Just some of us love it more now than others. <laughs> there is an actual inertia that settles in spiritually that kind of keeps us in a certain place. And of course, if you know anything about inertia from a physics perspective, I'm going back way back. You know, it takes a lot of energy to overcome inertia. And so when you think about first that there's a natural man, there's an old person that exists that's primarily selfish, self-centered, self-focused, and that that person, even though Christ died to free me from that person, until I'm translated into heaven and given a new body, that old person is still a drag on me. That old man, that flesh, the Bible calls, is still a drag on me, weighing me down. It's always going to default to a selfish, self-centered, self-focused lifestyle. And so there's got to be a counterbalance to that. And that's grace. That's God's grace. That's God's mercy lifting me up. But the reality is, is that, is that if I'm not consciously going to God and begging him for mercy and looking to his help, that, that it's not like I'm going to stay neutral, right? It's like if I step out of the airplane, there's only one direction I'm going in unless I have some other force lifting me up because gravity is going to take over. And on a spiritual level, that's what's happened to many of us, that, they, that we, we got lazy spiritually or we got discouraged spiritually. And what I've seen and what I've, I've been exercised about, even in my own life, is that I've noticed this pattern. I've seen it repeated multiple times, not only in my life or in the lives of people individually, but in the lives of assemblies and in churches. And what is this pattern? I'm just going to kind of spell it out to you. I call it like the death spiral of a gathering of God's people. And the death spiral is this. There is some distress that takes place in the local meeting. Now, it could be COVID. Right. A lot of us were distressed during COVID. I was. I think you'd have to be crazy not to be distressed. You'd have to be out of your mind not to be distressed, especially in the early days when like it seemed like the world was shutting down. And, you know, it was just like, you know, the, the kind of apocalyptic messaging that was coming out of the mainstream media. You really thought this was the end of the world as we knew it. So there could be distress like that, or it could be distress in an assembly where there's like a death of someone who's very prominent, or there's a, a departure of some family or group of people, or there's some conflict that leads to division within that church. And so there's a distress that takes place. And following that distress, there's a decline. 
There is a decline that occurs. People leave. People stop coming to meetings. They stop volunteering for things. And that decline leads to discouragement. And the thing about discouragement that I notice in my life, the thing that I think about discouragement that is the most deadly about it is that it saps our energy. Now, when we're discouraged, it's not that we don't have courage, right? Because that's sort of the root word of courage. Discouragement is, is courage. It's the idea we have no energy. Then when we're discouraged, it's just an effort to do things. And so the distress leads to a decline, which leads to discouragement, which then produces decay because decay is the natural process that occurs in everything. Everything decays. It is known in physics as the second law of thermodynamics. We go from a state of order to disorder. That's the natural progression. It's a universal phenomenon. It's a law of nature that decay occurs unless, guess what? You input energy. Unless you put energy into the system, decay is the default. So you think about how much energy you have to put into your car to keep it running. And I'm not just talking about the gasoline. I'm talking about replacing the parts. I'm talking about maintaining the engine. I'm talking about changing the oil. If you don't do those things, decay is going to take over. You leave your car sitting for a year in the driveway. You never turn it on. You never change the oil. It's not like that car is going to start for you when you try to start it. So decay is the natural slide, just like that old man is. That's like the representation where it says the whole creation groans and travails. Why? Because the whole creation is under the curse of sin. And therefore, decay is the natural progression of everything that lives on earth, including local churches, including you and me. And so unless there is an infusion of energy from outside the system, the car itself isn't going to keep maintaining it. The car itself is not going to keep driving. Something outside the system has to pour energy into it to keep it moving, to keep it going. So unless there's an infusion of energy from outside, decay is going to be the natural progression. And so if there's a distress that leads to a decline that then follows up with discouragement. That discouragement means you're taking energy out of the system. Discouragement means that people are not putting in, they're not invested. They're feeling despair. And the decay is what follows. And of course, as you start to feel the pressure of that decay, begin to notice that decay, guess what it leads to? More discouragement. The spiral. So the decay leads to more discouragement, which leads to more decline, which leads to more discouragement, which leads to more decay. So as I've traveled around, what I've noticed in some assemblies is that they're hanging on, they're hanging on because there are few people who are still putting energy into the system. But the decline, the death spiral, is spiraling. In some places I've visited, they're one funeral away from closing. 
maybe two. And so as we think about that reality, and then we think about where we are spiritually, what is the answer? What's the, what's the antidote? Where's the, where is that? Now, here's the thing what gets crazy, right? A lot of times church leaders will see that this is a problem. They'll recognize, ooh, we're going in the wrong direction. There's a decline. There's a sort of departure. There's a sort of this, this, this discouraging sense. And what do we do? We put our heads together. How can we fix this? How can we fix this? And so sometimes we come up with all what we need. We need new programs. Well, we need, you know, we're not reaching the community, so we need a new program. Or, you know, let's put our heads together. What we really need, what we really need is, is, is some new teaching or some, some kind of exciting um, ministry to come in and stir things up. Or maybe what we need to do is just sort of like, have a, uh, you know, a, you know, uh, let's re- revise our vision statement or our mission statement or, or let's figure out, you know, and, and all, all we're doing, right? All we're doing is looking to ourselves. And guess what? The system is still looking for the energy within the system. You see what, what we want to recognize is that when there's a distress that leads to decline, that leads to discouragement, Rather than being like, okay, well, what do we do to fix this? How do we fix this? It's really a wake-up call for us. Just like for me, right? I said to the Lord the other day, Lord, I'm not feeling great right now. I'm just out of sorts spiritually. I'm not feeling great, Lord, right now. Have you ever have that emotion? <laughs> kind of goes through it. But Rose and I call it like the the November blues, it's like a pattern in our lives. We get to November. I don't know whether it's like anticipation of the holidays. I don't know whether it's stress about, you know, the Bermuda Triangle, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. I don't know what it is that kind of gets people like in a kind of funky mood. But for me, it's always this time of year. Maybe it's just exhaustion. You know, I hit the school year running in September. It's like full steam ahead. And I'm just plowing through everything. I'm up at five o'clock every morning out the door by 630. It's like, and then come November, I'm like, I am running out of steam. I don't know. But I do know this. I'm not the solution to the problem. That's what I said to the Lord. I said, Lord, I got nothing in me. The way I'm feeling right now, there's no hope. I, I can't, I can't change the way I feel. I can't change my attitude. I can't change my affect. I can't change my emotional state right now. I just, I'm going through the motions, Lord, but Lord, I need you to lift me up. I need you to do something. And see, when those things happen on a personal level, when they happen on a a spiritual level for a congregation of God's people, it's not a time for us to circle the wagons and say, hey, what are we doing wrong? What can we do better? The answer is to cry out to Jesus. Because it was Jesus who said, I will build my church. And if you're part of that community, guess what? He's saying, I will build you. As much as he's going to build this great, amazing, wonderful, mysterious thing called the church that starts in Pentecost and lasts all the way to the rapture. This thing that is partly already in heaven and still here on earth, 
that is called out of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. That when we think about that thing, this church that he is building, this great mystery that Paul said was hidden in the Old Testament, but is now revealed in the New Testament, this great thing that Christ says, I will build, and now I am building, we get to be a part of that. And because we're a part of that, he says, I'm going to build you. I'm going to build you. You know, sometimes when I get discouraged and I'm sitting in a meeting, I think about, you know, Lord, you know, hmm, I wish things were different. Do you ever think that? You're sitting in a meeting. I wish maybe it's not the, maybe it's the music. Maybe it's the preaching. Maybe it says whatever. You kind of get a little discouraged. You think to yourself, I wish things were better, right? I always wish things were better. That's not a bad thing. I mean, do you want wish things were worse? I wish things were terrible today. No. We like to think about things being better. But when I start to think about this, I think to myself, you know, as the international dateline began this Sunday, voices around the world were lifted up in praise to Jesus. Starting in places like the Fiji Islands, and then moving across to Australia and Japan and China, where little churches gather with only a handful of people or great cathedrals resounding with his praise. Around this planet, millions upon millions of people gathered to praise Jesus. And you and me, we're part of that. And so it doesn't matter whether we're in a gathering of two or three or 20 or 30 or 200 or 300 or 2,000 or 3,000. The fact is that we are gathered together to him. One author writes, what Christians have to do in the present day of church crisis and church difficulty is to take their eyes off of every man and every system man has set up and to seek to learn what God says about his church and the word. I believe that today God would turn his people back again to the Holy Scriptures for light and guidance as to the church. COVID has caused a lot of people to rethink a lot of things. It's caused businesses to rethink how they function. I mean, how many people heard of people working from home before COVID, right? There was a handful, I'm not saying that, but now people reporting to work, like that's becoming the exception. Wait, you really want me to come into the office? Like you gotta threaten people with firing them if they don't report into the office? I mean, think about corporations and how they're rethinking like why am i spending all this money on retail office space renting all this property talking to talking to a brothers in the real estate business oh yeah it's going to be terrible in the next couple of years all these offices buildings once their leases are up they're not going to renew them why would they why spend millions of dollars on overhead when hey listen i, I can decentralize the whole process so COVID's caused a lot of organizations and institutions to rethink how they function, how they work, what they do, how they do it. 
And you know what? We as the God's people are in the same place. But here's the challenge. Well, here's the thing that I think is really the challenge. The thing that COVID did was disconnect us. It separated us. It isolated us. It caused us to be afraid of each other. That's what happened. We became afraid of each other. You, know, you see a family member and they go, <coughs> you're like, get away. <laughs> like, they got leprosy. Right? That's how we acted. Yeah, shake hands here with the, you know, the elbow thing, you know, fist bump. As if it was like leprosy. Now, I granted in the early days, it was terrifying. But do you see what it did to us? It made us so afraid. It caused us such pain. Now, granted, I understand there are protocols, all those things. Those were good things. But what's the long-term effect of that? Are we still afraid? You know, my wife and I, it was early on in COVID. And... We decided to watch. We were like, you know, like everybody else, you're at home watching Netflix. What else are you going to do? You know, they can't go anywhere, can't be there. So we decided we're going to watch this movie, Molokai. Father Molokai. It's a, I had to stop watching. I could not take it, the stress of this, of this show. Why? Because Father Molokai was a priest who voluntarily, and this is like 100 years, 150 years ago, back in the 19th century, Voluntarily, he just decided he's going to live with the lepers and minister to the lepers in the leper colony. His whole response was, God will take care of me. It is, it is not for me to worry. And people are like, you do understand that lepers is like a contagious disease. If you get it, it's like pretty much a death sentence. And he's like, yeah, I know. And of course, as we're watching this, can't even like say hello to my neighbor. I'm so like nervous about stuff. But here was this man. He just said, no, I'm, this is what God's called me to love my neighbor. And my neighbors in this case are lepers. And of course I'd have to look away because he would get down on the dirt and be down there and he would be bathing their wounds and talking to them and they would reach out and hug him and he'd hug them back. I'm like, I can't even hug somebody who I think might have COVID, which might just be the common cold at this point. So what, what the enemy wants to do is divide us. That's always been his thing. That's why Jesus spent his last breath before his crucifixion praying for the unity of his people. That they would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. And of course, when we look at this passage and we see this passage and we look at it, we see Jesus saying to his disciples that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as we are faced with this this temptation of decline, this this, this temptation of discouragement, this temptation of despair, as we're focused perhaps on the losses that were very real. I mean, for many people, they lost their homes and, and they lost their businesses. They lost their livelihoods. They lost loved ones. That it was a very distressing time. Not denying that. 
But in that distress, are we tempted to despair? Are we tempted to discouragement that leads to despair? Have we allowed the discouragement and the despair to lead to decline in our own personal spiritual lives that has produced decay in our corporate lives? Well, we need to hear what Jesus says. He says, I will build my church. It's not up to the disciples. It's not up to us. It is that Jesus says, I will build my church. And of course, when he says that, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the one who is the foundation. We're talking about the one who is the cornerstone. As Paul would write, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That he is the cornerstone. Therefore, it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. That, that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. We sing that hymn. And we need to remember who he is. He is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. This is the one upon whom the church is built. And while it is true, and Jesus himself said, that there are times when individual lampstands will be removed. If you read Revelations chapter 2 and 3, he warns those congregations that unless they repent, their lampstands will be removed. So it's not that any local church has a guarantee that it'll always be until the second coming. That's not guaranteed. But what is guaranteed is the church universal will not be destroyed and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And where one lampstand goes out, he raises up another somewhere else. But if we as a local congregation, wherever we gather together, whether it be two or three or 20 or 30 or 200 or 300, we all have to remember who's responsible for building the church. It is Jesus who says, I will build my church. Now, here's the great thing. He wants to use us, but it's not like, it's not like, uh, well, okay, Jesus, we got the message. You want to build the church through us, and now we go off and do it ourselves. Because Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So he says, I will build my church. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that you could add this to that statement, which would be true consistently. I will build my church through my church. But it's he who builds it through us. That's the whole image of the vine and the branch. We connect it to the vine. The vine gives us the life. The branch bears the fruit. That is why the imagery here is of the body. The portrait that Paul talks about is that we are the body of Christ. I will build my church. At the time that Jesus said this to the disciples, the church was a future thing. He didn't say, I am building the church. He said, I will build the church. That at the time he said this to the disciples, 
right then the offer of the kingdom was still on the table to the children of Israel. He was their Messiah. He was presenting himself as their promised one, the anointed one. Oh, desire, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. In that real sense, Emmanuel had come and had offered Israel their chance, their Messiah. And of course, what we find in the New Testament is that they said, essentially, we will not have this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. Take him away and crucify him. And in that moment, God's providence oversaw the events that occurred. It was a good offer Jesus was making to his people. You read the Gospels. He does not talk about the church. He does not give any hint of the church. He is legitimately offering himself to his people saying, this is me. This is the one. And they say, no thanks. And the mystery that had been hidden for long ages, Paul says, is now revealed in their rejection of their Messiah. God unfolds the next plan of his drama, which is to bring out of every tribe, people, and nation, a new thing, a body that will be the church, the called out ones. This was a mystery that the Old Testament knew very little about. Paul makes it clear, this idea of this grand body. Now think about this, how consistent God is. God takes the curse and makes it a blessing. That's what God does. Adam and Eve fall, they sin, they're kicked out of the garden, death comes into the world. God promises them a redeemer, one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. He unfolds a plan that is going to take the curse and make it a blessing. He offers himself to the children of Israel as the Messiah. This is God's plan for you. And they say, no, thank you. And God says, okay, I'm going to take the curse and make it a blessing. You're going to reject your Messiah. You're going to collude with the Romans. You're going to have him crucified. But in his death and in his resurrection, I'm going to do a new thing. And it's going to even be better than what was first promised. Because now it's not an ethnicity. It's not a group of people limited by their racial, ethnic background. It is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so what was future at the time that Jesus said these words to the disciples becomes present reality in this age in which we live. Here's an interesting fact. The word church is used 110 times of Christians in the New Testament, only three times in the Gospels. The word kingdom is used 162 times in the New Testament. Most of those occur in the four Gospels. You see, because the church is not the kingdom. The church is not Israel. We are something else. But like I said, it was a mystery in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean the Old Testament said nothing about the church or that it wasn't foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Because as the wise person once said, the old is the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. 
we read of this in 1 Samuel 22 too. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented. Now, wait a second. Distressed, in debt, discontented. Sounds like 20th century America, 21st century America, right? Often sounds like many of our congregations. Distressed, in debt, and discontented. But what does it say? They gathered to him. And he became captain over them. Who's the him? It's David. Everyone who was in distress. Everyone who was in debt. And everyone who was discontented. Gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And when did this happen? Not while David was sitting on a throne. Not while David was being heralded as king. Not while David was reigning in Hebron or reigning in Jerusalem. It was before he ascended his throne and was crowned as king of Israel. This was when David was in exile. This was when David was banished. This was when David was rejected by the kingdom and pursued by the king as an alien and an outlaw. But in that context, those who were in distress, those who were in debt, and those who were discontent gathered to him. Brothers and sisters, doesn't that apply to us? Are not we the ones who are in distress? We're not we the ones who had a debt we could not pay? And aren't we the ones who look at this life and without Jesus, there's nothing but discontentment? And what are we called to do? We are gathered to him. And guess what the word church means? It means the gathering of the called out ones. We are called out of the world to gather to him. We don't gather to a building. We don't gather to a denomination. We don't gather to some idea or ideology. We don't gather to a place. We gather to him and he is our captain. And what does that make us? We become the king's men and the king's women. We become those who are his mighty warriors. We become those who are the faithful, who followed him when he was in exile. For truly he is in exile now. Because as the writer to the Hebrews says, let us Go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. He is not here ruling. He is rejected by the nations. He is, as it were, in exile waiting to return to claim his kingdom and his crown. But we, the discontent, the indebted, and the distressed, have gathered outside the camp, outside the city, outside the culture, outside this world, to him, and he has called us his own, for he has become captain to us, our captain our king.
I will build my church. It's his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to any denomination. Not to the bishops or the popes. Not even the congregation or the elders and the deacons. It is his church. And what is his church? It's really interesting. It's not any, really doesn't require any deep study to know that the word church is actually a pretty terrible translation of the word that's in the New Testament for church. If you were to look up in a Greek lexicon or if you were to get a strong concordance and you do a little word study, what you'd find out is that the New Testament word for the church that's translated in English, the church, is the Greek word ekklesia. And ekklesia literally means the called out ones, the ones who are called out and who gather together. It's a, the ecclesia is not translated well by the word church. Actually, the word church comes from a different Greek word. One author writes, the word church is a complicated history. It's probably derived from the old English word kirke, which in turn came from the German kirka, which likely came from the Greek kyriake, which means of the Lord. That's sort of the, the, the etymology of the word. You trace it back through the history. The word English word church came from probably Old English, which probably came from the Old German, which probably came from the Greek, which meant of the Lord. Now, some scholars dispute this, and they say that the English word derives from the Anglo-Saxon word kirke, which in turn comes from the Latin word circus, meaning circle or ring, because the early congregants gathered in a circle. Church is a circus. Hmm. That might actually have some resonance with us. <laughs> But the Greek word kyriakos, which is where most scholars think the word church came from, means of the Lord, is found in the New Testament just barely, just two times. Once in 1 Corinthians 11 and once in Revelation 1. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, therefore, when you are gathering yourselves together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And the word Lord's Supper the word Lord's there is kyriakon, of the Lord, the supper of the Lord. And then the Revelation 1.10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, or the day of the Lord's. That's where the Greek word kyriakon, kyriakon comes from, where, it, where it's used in the New Testament. So, the word church is really a mistranslation. Better words that would translate ecclesia would be words like assembly, gathering, congregation. And I say, what's, what's, what's in a word? When people think of church, what do they think of? What's that? Building. Now, what's crazy? Is that's probably a better use of the word church. Because when it was first used in, in the medieval period, and early medieval period, that's what it referred to. They actually called these things the churches of the Lord, the Lord's building. But we were the congregation, the assembly, 
You see what, going back to our earlier proposition, Satan wants to divide us. He wants to isolate us. He wants to separate us. But when we think about what it means to be an assembly, what it means to be a congregation, what it means to be a gathering, this is, this is, I know this is not mind blowing. It might be for some of you, but congregations congregate. Gatherings gather. Assemblies <laughs> assemble. The idea is that it's about the people, not about where they meet or in what location, but that they meet together. An interesting historical point, places like this for the church did not exist for the first 300 years or more of the church history. They never met in places like this. They did not exist. They could meet in rented halls, but more often they met where? In homes. Isn't that interesting? The church met in homes. The church met in homes. Think how easy it is to obey the commands, to love one another, to be hospitable to one another, to serve one another when you meet in a home. But you see what COVID did, right? It was just blow us all apart. Now, thank God for Zoom. Thank God for YouTube. Thank God for the technologies that allows the church today to reach more people than ever before. But we must not mistake, a, as it were, a medical treatment for a normal way of life. If I had cancer and you told me you need to take chemotherapy, as much as I would hate it, I would do it because that's going to keep me alive. Like there would be something seriously wrong with me if the doctor said to me, look, you're cancer-free. Well, keep those drugs coming. Because I just love being nauseous all the time. When the, when the disease is passed, you stop taking the treatment. Now, I know COVID is going to live with us forever. It's, it's going to be here. It's endemic now. It's not a pandemic. It's endemic. It's like the common cold or the flu. It's going to be with us probably a lot more serious than both of those things, but we're adapting as humans have adapted for thousands of years. This is what we do. If you want to know what zero COVID policy meant, just take a look at China today. They are in utter chaos because they refuse to admit that we have to live with this. And they just keep trying to make it go away. It ain't happening and it never will. You're fighting a lost cause, Xi Jinping. But that won't stop him because he's, totally inflated with his own ego no matter how many people suffer how many people die how many people get sick he refuses to admit i was wrong we should change course bible calls that repentance by the way but for us for us we are called out of the world 
called out of the kingdom of darkness, out of our sin and our shame, our isolation, our alienation, and our separation. And we are gathered to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are gathered to our captain and our king. The church is supposed to be a subversive movement undermining the kingdom of darkness. We are a counterculture looking to offer the world a better way, his way, the way. We are followers of him who said, come, live, die. We are the hands and feet and mouth of the one calling to the lost, the lonely, and the losers come. I told you that there's a Christmas connection to this. And there is. Because when we gather at Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation of God Almighty here on earth. The word made flesh and dwelling among us. But Jesus said, it is necessary for me to go away so that I will send you another comforter who will be in you. And in a very real but different way, but in a very real way, the church is the second incarnation of Christ. Because we are his body. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his eyes. We are his lips. We are the beggars who are telling other beggars where to find the bread. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we've had to meditate on your word. We pray that as we consider these things first, Lord, we would come humbly acknowledging any of the, the, the despair, the whispers of despair that Satan has whispered to us and that we've believed, any of the, the doubts or insecurities or discouragements that we've embraced that we would just pour our hearts out to you, Lord, knowing that you are the answer. You are the one who lifts us up on wings of eagles. You are the one who puts our feet on solid ground. You are our rock, our hiding place, our shelter in the storm. As you brought us through so many different and dark days over the last few years, we can trust you going forward, knowing that you are faithful. And so, Lord, we just want to confess that to you right now. We want to be open to new movements of your spirit in our lives and in our congregations as we gather together, whether we be few or many, that we might be willing to hear your voice. And Father, if we're here and we're listening to this message and there's not a good reason, not a medical reason, not a real reason for us to not be gathering with your people, I pray you might convict those who are not here but should be. We pray for those who are not here but want to be and wish they could be here, but they're grateful for Zoom and YouTube and all the ways they can connect with your people. We pray that as your people, we might go to them and be the church to them, gathering with them. As you said, two or three gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. We pray, Father, that you might revive your people. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you might infuse us with that energy that we need to, to press on, to press upward to keep going, knowing that you are faithful and that you will perfect all that concerns us. And until that day when we hear that trumpet sound and we hear your voice calling us home, we pray that we would persevere. Bearing fruit into the end. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.